You're tuned in to the Coach Onamdi Show on WMU 88.5. Welcome. Although commuting has slowed down during the pandemic, Maryland is undertaking some major transportation proposals and projects. The state is considering building a high-speed railway known as Maglev between D.C. and Baltimore. This would be the first phase of a rail line that would travel between the district and New York within an hour. Additionally, Maryland's Department of Transportation is moving forward on plans to add four toll lanes on a portion of the Capitol Beltway and I-270 in order to alleviate traffic congestion on the highways. We'll start with a conversation about the maglev. Joining us now is Luz Lazo, Washington Post transportation reporter. Luz, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me, Luz, we've been hearing a lot about the Northeast maglev. First, what is maglev and how does it work? <laughs> sure, yes. Um, well, uh, I am not an expert in um, this, uh, the technology, but I'll tell you what I know. <laughs> it's, it's kind of like a super bullet train. Um, and basically the system uses like powerful magnetic forces that uh, lift um, and propel trains about four inches above a guideway. And, um, and the train goes at speeds of up to 375 miles per hour. Um, now, the train that's being proposed to go from D.C. to Baltimore in about 15 minutes uh, will travel at a maximum speed of about 311 miles per hour. So that's, uh, that's quite fast. Um, and that's something that we have in the United States um, and actually not in many countries yet. Okay, so we first heard about this a few years ago, and Maryland has been considering a proposal to build the first leg of the Northeast Magli you mentioned, running from D.C. to Baltimore. How long would that trip take? The trip from D.C. to Baltimore is about is 15 minutes. Ooh, that would be quick. Yeah, it's, it will be fast. Uh, and, uh, you know, in the, in the Washington area, the train will travel about 75% underground. Um, it will run um, uh, parallel to the Baltimore-Washington Parkway, for those familiar with that area, and um, will be underneath, you know, in proximity to homes and schools and parks, but most of it will be underground. Uh, this type of technology um, has been tested in other parts of the world. Um, the one that the technology that's being proposed here is um, modeled after the, the maglev train in Japan. Uh, but recently I read that China has, be, has been testing uh, maglev technology and, um, and that train had a record speed of 400 miles per hour. So this is technology that a lot of countries are exploring would this be the first high-speed maglev train proposed in this country? And if so, why has the U.S. lagged so far behind on this? Uh, yes, this will be um, the first maglev technology um, in the country and also the first high-speed um, train in the United States. Uh, we haven't uh, been... Um, able to catch up with some of the high-speed uh, railroads in other parts of the world. Um, and so this, is, this will be definitely something new.
We're talking with Luz Lazo of the Washington Post. She's a transportation reporter. We're talking about a proposal for a high-speed maglev train in this area. Luz, getting back to the possibility of a high-speed maglev train between D.C. and Baltimore, it's my understanding it's still very much in the speculation phase, but what would a possible timeline to build the maglev look like? Right. Um, yes, it's uh, it's still uh, something that even some people think it's unrealistic. Um, it's very futuristic or uh, people say, well, you know, we should start, you know, with the regular high speed motor run trains. But um, but actually, you know, this is and like you said, there's been conversations about this for years. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we are now um, at a point where we are we have been the closest to coming to construction. Um, currently, the Federal Rail, Railroad Administration is um, is conducting a federal review of this project. And it's expected to complete it this year. Uh, basically, the agency could essentially give the project the green light to proceed. Uh, obviously, as you have said, there's questions about financing. Um, but, but by the end of the year, the proponents of this project could have their, the blessing of the federal government for a construction option. And that could mean potentially starting construction sometime next year and Mm. seven years of construction and operations by 2030. So within the decade, it could be um, a reality. Well, what, um, how much would it cost to ride from here to Baltimore? Uh, Right. It will be expensive. Um, Well, uh, the, uh, the train, let me see, um, you're, you're talking about fares, right? Yep. Like how much yep. it will cost. Okay. Yeah. So, so the, the Federal Railway Administration this last month, uh, issued a, a very, very long report on this project and they had some <laughs> insight. They had some insights on like what we can expect from it, right? So you could expect to pay an average fare for one trip, one way trip of $60. Um, and it could vary between $27 and $80 per trip, uh, but the average will be $60. That is, if you compare it to what we have now, that is a little bit on the pricey side because you could, you can ride, you could ride the Mark train uh, from Baltimore to DC for $8. Obviously, that, that takes you about an hour to get from city to city. Uh, or you can take the Acela train, the Amtrak's Acela train, for about $46. And that takes you from D.C. to Baltimore in 32 minutes. Um, mm. So if you're willing to pay $60 to get to uh, Baltimore from the district um, in 15 minutes, uh, and if you can afford it, um, yeah, you can get there in 15 minutes if this okay. is built. <laughs> Let's talk with Timothy in Cleveland, Ohio. Timothy, you're on the air. Go ahead, please. Very good. Um, yes, my name is Timothy. I'm calling in from Cleveland, Ohio. I had the opportunity to reside for three and a half years in mainland China, in the city of Shanghai. And during that period of time, Shanghai has a maglev from the city to the airport, which is about an hour car ride. And on top of the maglev, China has the world. Well, wait, wait, allow me to interrupt. You say it's about an hour car ride. How long does it take on the maglev? Maglev take, uh, took about maybe six minutes. Okay. <laughs> and so on top of the maglev, though, we have to have an understanding that 
when an American or anyone goes to China, they really gain the understanding of how this is a first world country when it comes to infrastructure. An American getting on the Amtrak after living in China can, how do I put it, our Amtrak system is quite pitiful when we look at what a first world infrastructure is in mainland China. And so my hopes with the, with the incoming Biden administration is that they can really build something that, uh, a bullet train system in the United States, because it has essentially in China negated the need for domestic air travel. Thank you very much for having me on your... One, one more quick question. How expensive was it to travel on the Maglev in China? Maglev, it was, uh, if my memory is correct, it was about uh, $30. A $30 okay. ride uh, from the center of Shanghai to the airport. Okay. And on top of that, though, the bullet train system is, it is, it is quite cheap. Much okay. cheaper than a domestic airline ticket would be. Okay, thank you very much for sharing that with us. Luz Lazo, how much would this project cost and how would it be funded? It's my understanding that this, this would be an initiative led by private investors? It is. Um, this is uh, there's a group of private investors that are pushing this project. Um, and it won't be, <laughs> it won't be cheap. Uh, the uh, estimates are that just building the first 40 miles between D.C. and Baltimore could be between 16, I mean, between $14 billion and $17 billion. It depends on what route they choose, but, you know, it's within that range, $16 billion with a B uh, to, um, I mean, $14 billion to $17 billion. Um, so that's that's quite expensive. Um, and if you are thinking about from D.C. to New York, it will be about $100 billion. Okay, here now is Lauren in Durwood, Maryland. Lauren, your turn. Hi there. Thank you so much for taking my call. I love your program. Um, so I'm concerned about this project. I've been following it for a little while, and I have two major concerns um, that I'll raise today. One is that I think the way that the train is going to work, it's really going to disproportionately uh, benefit wealthier people, you know, the ones that are doing that long-haul travel on a regular basis, while costing all of the taxpayers. So I, I feel a, a, in this time of equity and social justice, it's really not appropriate to do this project, um, questionable as to its need as well. And my second issue is that uh, the current project proposal is placing a maintenance yard in really sensitive habitat. They're planning to place it in the Greenbelt area, which is one of the most highly studied environmental areas in the country. It has a very long, rich history of environmental research coming out of that uh, parcel of land. Once you build this, you lose that forever. You'll never get that habitat back. You can't just plant Thank it you. and replace it. Thank you very much for your call. Luz Ladwin, by the minute we have left, and this will be going after the break for a few minutes too, but how do other jurisdictions feel about the maglev, and how would the project readers, leaders get permission to lay a rail line that would have to go through Prince George's and Anne Arundel counties? Uh, yes, there is uh, quite a bit of opposition um, in in some in Prince George's County and Anne Arundel County. These are the towns that um, the uh, the maglev will go through, but will not stop in there. Um, as you know, these will only have three stops, one in the district, one at BWI Airport, and the other one in Baltimore. So the towns in between have 
have um, you know concerns that these will have will not have a direct you know benefit to them, but will essentially impact their uh, neighborhoods. Um, there are concerns about like uh, the the caller just mentioned, you know, impacts on, on public uh, and private property uh, parkland, and um, and also the um, the cost of the you know okay. of the service. Okay, got to take a short break. When we come back, Luz Lazo will stay with us for a few more minutes because a lot of people clearly want to talk about the proposed <laughs> high-speed maglev. I'm Kojo Nandi. DCS Daily. DCS Daily. DCS Daily. It's news, culture, and curiosities. From the district, Tacoma Park, Alexandria, Friendship Heights, Hyattsville, Falls Church, Northeast Washington, D.C., in your inbox every weekday afternoon. DCS Daily. Sign up at dcs.com slash newsletter. dcs.com slash newsletter. Welcome back. In a little while, we'll be moving on to the plans for I-270 and the Beltway. But for the time being, for the next few minutes, we'll still be talking about the proposed high-speed maglev train with Luz Lazo of the Washington Post. Luz, it's my understanding that one of the biggest challenges is how to find room to build the railway line itself and terminal stations in downtown D.C. and Baltimore. This plan will before a station in Mount Vernon in the district. What are the challenges of building a station in such a densely built part of downtown D.C.? Right. Well, because this will be, um, you know, underground, at least in this portion of the of the system, uh, I think the main concern will be the tunneling um, around the, uh, the area that they have picked in Mount Vernon Square. And uh, that, you know, there will be tunneling, all the way to uh, to Baltimore, right? So these will impact communities uh, just like any other construction um, in the area. Okay, joining us now is Ian Rainey, Senior Vice President of Northeast, Northeast Maglev, which is behind this project. Ian Rainey, thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you very much. Well, we've heard about some of the difficulties. What would some of the benefits of this project be? Well, yeah, that's a great question. And honestly, the, the economic benefits of this project just really can't be overstated. Um, I think uh, one of your guests uh, talked a little bit about the cost of the project. Um, and, you know, with that expenditure and in infrastructure, uh, we're forecasting that the project is actually going to create about 160,000 jobs in the region. And that's from construction uh, as well as operations. Um, and another great benefit of the project is it'll take about 15 million cars off the roads each year between D.C. and Baltimore. So that not only reduces emissions, but it also means a much faster and safer commute if you are using a car to get around. Well, the cost of driving this high-speed train we are being made to understand might be out of reach for a lot of presidents. What would you anticipate a ticket from here to Baltimore and a ticket from here to New York to cost? Yeah, that's a great question, too. Uh, you know, Luce uh, hit on that, and I, I appreciate her response. Um, it, it is correct in this environmental impact statement that's been released, uh, the average cost of the ticket is estimated at about $60, uh, which is comparable with Amtrak Acela. 
But um, really, the, the cost of a ticket is going to vary uh, based on the purpose of travel. So if you're a business traveler, uh, you buy your ticket at the last minute and uh, you're traveling during rush hour, uh, you might be paying that $60. Um, if you buy your ticket ahead of time and you're going off that peak hour, it could be as low as $27. So there's going to be price points that I think accommodate all the travelers in the region. Okay, here's Jim in Greenbelt, Maryland. Jim, you're on the air. Go ahead, please. Hey, Kojo, yeah. Uh, yeah, here in Greenbelt, one of the communities that's going to pass through, we're doing everything we can to fight it because we know it's going to be an environmental disaster for us, and uh, it's going to benefit a small, very small group of people. It's going to harm a very large group of people, and... And the worst of it is, for the cost of the project, if you took 5% of that money and gave it to Amtrak, we could have a decent uh, train system in this country. Jim, why will it be an environmental disaster for you in Greenville? Oh, the tunneling, the, all, the, all the stuff that's going to come out of that, all the uh, land around it that's going to be uh, the green environment now that's going to be disrupted by that. It's, uh, to say nothing, of just the noise and uh, disruption of the original okay. building itself, etc. Okay, thank you. thank you for sharing that, Jim. I think I want to get to Liz in Greenbelt, Maryland, before I have Ian respond, because I think Liz has similar concerns and is also in Greenbelt. Liz, your turn. Yeah. Um, hi, I'm Liz. I've been living in Greenbelt for about 25 years. And um, Greenbelt has a um, unique 254-acre forest preserve. This is land that the uh, city of Greenbelt purchased with, I believe it was with, um, uh, with assistance with federal funds. And uh, this land is uh, home to a number of different species, including bald eagles. And one of the proposed routes for the maglev would destroy approximately half of the forest preserve. Also, um, the maglev okay, that's, that's... would pass through the Beaver Creek um, watershed. Okay. Uh, there's a lot of marshland that's just north of Greenbelt, um, which okay. is habitat for a number of species, including... Okay, I, d I don't have a great deal of time, so allow me to have Ian Rainey respond. How do you do this, Ian Rainey, without significant environmental disruption? Well, no, thanks, and I, I appreciate the caller's comments. Um, we're, we're really trying to work uh, as cooperatively as we can with all of the impacted communities. Um, we are absolutely committed to building this project in a way that not only meets uh, our transportation needs, but does it in a way that's environmentally sensitive. And we're committed to a very, very detailed uh, environmental review process. Uh, that includes not just the federal government, but the state and local governments. I think there are about 50 or 60 agencies involved. Um, so the idea here is to leave no, no stone unturned. Uh, we've been undertaking this process for about three years, and it's, it's very comprehensive. Um, you know, one of the reasons that we're building three-quarters of this project in tunnel uh, is to uh, eliminate the types of the environmental concerns that the caller raised. So uh, we're taking, I think, all the right steps and going through the process to mitigate any environmental impacts. 
Luz Lasso, it's my understanding that there are some people who are excited about the idea of a 15-minute trip between Baltimore and D.C. We've heard a number of people who oppose it, but have you spoken with some people who really would look forward to it? There are people who support it, and uh, I think Ian also mentioned uh, that, but uh, there are several business and labor groups um, that um, support the project because of some of the potential job and economic um, benefits from it. Okay, and I'm afraid that's about all the time we have at this point. Ian Rainey, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. And Luz Lazo is the Washington Post transportation reporter. Luz, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Joining us now is Jordan Pascoe, WAMU's transportation reporter. Jordan Pascoe, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me, Kojo. Jordan, we've seen nearly a year now into the pandemic, tens of thousands of people and school kids at home doing their work remotely. How has traffic changed in the region? And are we seeing any return of commuter traffic yet? Well, if you remember, early in the pandemic, we really had traffic volumes tank. I mean, they were down 50% or more. That's kind of slowly risen back over time to almost about where we were. We're still down about 10 to 15% normal traffic volumes, but that 10% makes a really big difference when it comes to congestion. Um, because once a road reaches capacity, each added little percent has an exponential impact on how bad traffic gets. And just to illustrate it one more way, pre-COVID, your evening rush hour speeds on the Beltway were about 40 miles per hour. Now it's about 60 miles per hour. Woo. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Maryland's Department of Transportation selected uh, their proposal to expand the capital Beltway on I-270, adding four high-occupancy toll lanes, two in either direction. What are high occupancy toll lanes for those who may not be familiar with them, also known as hot lanes, and how do they work? Yeah, hot lanes mean that if you have three or more people in your vehicle, you can use these high occupancy lanes for free. But if you're driving with less than three people, you can still use those lanes. You just have to pay to use them. Um, and like in Northern Virginia, those tolls will increase based on how busy the toll lanes are. They want to keep those lanes moving uh, at about 45 miles per hour. The whole goal is to get people to either carpool or take transit to free up space and to provide and to provide like a consistent travel option for those that, that want to pay. Well, Northern Virginia did something similar several years ago along another heavy commuter route. How has it been working out there? Well, you know, Virginia says uh, their morning commutes on the regular lanes in I-495, they take 7% less time than it did before the express lane. So they're saying it's improving travel for everyone. Um, on 95 South, evening commuters um, have, you know, 15% less travel time in the regular lanes. So and Virginia's even building more of these express lanes all the way to Fredericksburg. So it's a tactic that officials really believe in there. I'm Kojo Nandi. Welcome back. We're talking about the plan to add four toll lanes to widen the Beltway and I-270. We're talking with Jordan Pascal, WMU transportation reporter. Jordan, many complain that hot lanes are Lexus lanes. At times, the tolls in Northern Virginia have hit more than $30 a trip. What's the argument for these toll lanes for the average commuter? 
Yeah, I mean, these tolls can be really pricey at times. Uh, the argument that I've always heard from Virginia officials is that, you know, even if you can't afford to pay the toll, those that are paying are getting out of the regular lanes and freeing up space for, for folks that can't. So, um, you know, while that may be true, I'm not sure how big of a difference that really makes in the eyes of, you know, your regular commuter. Um, uh, officials also say most people only use the lanes occasionally, like when they really need to get to like their kid's soccer game or, you know, <laughs> get home for dinner or something like that. Um, this expansion of the Beltway on I-270 was originally proposed to encompass more of those highways. In this proposal, where would these lanes be and why? Yeah, so originally, I mean, the state still wants to build hot lanes all around 495 in Maryland, but this project is being broken down into phases. And so this first phase is about 12 miles, and it starts at the Potomac River and the American Legion Bridge, and then goes kind of north uh, east up to the I-270 interchange and then north to Gaithersburg. Um, And that's kind of where the biggest need is at the moment. Is the region's traffic that bad, Jordan, that hot lanes charging tolls are necessary? <laughs> I don't know how much, I don't know how much you've been driving during this uh, pandemic, Kojo, but um, you know it's not like we're used to. So at the moment, no traffic is not as bad as you know it was before. But it's really hard to predict what the future will look like. Um, you think about telework has changed the way that many in this uh, region's economy work. Uh, the Greater Washington Partnership has been surveying you know large white collar businesses in the region and found that many, uh, the majority of businesses, expect most of their workforce to be able to telework at least one to two days after the pandemic. So even that little bit of change can make a big difference in terms of traffic. Um, But if we go back to, you know, the way we were before the pandemic, yes, you know, 270 and 495 were historically some of the most congested parts of the region. Well, a listener tweets, how can a $40 toll on I-66 pre-COVID be worth 15% of saved time? Now all the traffic has been moved to local streets. But then here is Jason in Arlington, Virginia. Jason, your turn. Hi, Kojo. Uh, My name is Jason Stanford. I'm the president of the Northern Virginia Transportation Alliance. Uh, I'm calling today because we've joined... uh, 24 regional business and civic organizations in support of the Maryland Hot Lanes Project uh, because our region is expected to grow by more than 1 million people and jobs over the next two decades. I know you were just talking with Jordan about the possibility that, you know, will things return? I think it's important to keep the transportation project to a long range, and it's important to keep that in mind. And these would accommodate that growth incentivize more carpooling, increase transit reliability and ridership between Virginia and Maryland, save Maryland millions of dollars, shorten commutes in both free and toll lanes, and create a travel option that simply doesn't exist today. Uh, We've seen these lanes work in Virginia, and we agree with the region's transportation planning board that a regional express lanes network should be a top transportation goal for our region. Thank you very much for your call, Jason. I'm sure, Jordan, you've been hearing that sentiment, but you've probably also been hearing the one expressed by Barbara in an email. The Maryland Department of Transportation says that adding private toll lanes will reduce traffic congestion, but their environmental report states that rush hour traffic on I-270 North will be worse. So after putting up with years of delay from construction, drivers on I-270 will be rewarded with more congestion. 
How much of this kind of stuff you've been hearing, Jordan? <laughs> yeah, I mean both both point of views um, actually, mm-hmm. and and uh, you know the caller had a great point that um, you know this is a fifty year deal with you know these private partners that Maryland wants to do this project with. So it is you know in the short term we're looking at you know pandemic's been a year, but we are talking fifty years and hopefully more growth in the region and all all that sort of thing. But yeah, and then um, the tweet or uh, email. Also correct that that is included in that report that um, could get uh, longer and indeed years of construction to deal with as well. In Virginia, Jordan, toll lanes were constructed through a PPP, a public-private partnership, shifting the cost of construction to private companies. They would then collect the tolls to recoup and make a profit. How is that going to work in Maryland? Same. Yeah, yeah, pretty similar. Maryland's um, looking at these private partners, and but looking to include them a little bit earlier in the process. Um, three teams, uh, including Transurban, which operates the Virginia Express lanes, are bidding on the project to be the uh, private partner, uh, and that selection is supposed to be announced this month. So we'll we'll find out who who wants in on this deal. Here is Nate in Leesburg, Virginia. Nate, you're on the what is no Nate isn't on the air yet. Nate is now on the air. Go ahead, please, Nate. Hey, Kojo, we're all going to miss you. But uh, I was wondering about motorcycles on the express lanes. Are they uh, free? I saw a sign in Virginia off the of gallows, but I'm not sure about 95 and uh, future 66, and then 495 in Maryland. Jordan. Oh, man, that's a good one on the spot. Um, I think, oh, gosh, I want to say if my memory serves me, motorcycles can use them, but don't quote me on that. And I imagine it would probably be similar for Maryland, but I'd have to double check. So, Okay, thank you. Here's Byrne in Tacoma Park. Byrne, you're on the air. Go ahead, please. Hello, and thank you, Kojo. Yes, we are going to miss you. Uh, my concern is, of course, that we are sort of a um, slave automobile, but that said, if we're going to build these lanes on our beltway and up to 70, and we're going to share profit with private corporations, what about the public? What about sharing some of that profit and putting it into Metro to put lanes of Metro, like Route 66, right in the same right-of-way, right above the right-of-way, going up to 70 where we could use it or going up to Laurel? Let's expand mass transit, especially Metro, which needs more funding, by some of the profits and gasoline tax. I guess, Jordan, this is really part of the essence of this debate between people who want to see expanded roads and people who want to see expanded mass transit. Yeah, and um, in Virginia, at least, some of that toll revenue does go into grants that the state um, dedicates towards, like, commuter buses and and stuff like that that can use those express lanes. Um, i imagine the deal is similar. I haven't looked that specifically into Maryland's proposal, but I imagine it would be similar where they are, you know, boost transit, you know, down 270 or, you know, um, part of the proposal that Maryland's pitching is like expanding, you know, uh, park and ride areas and um, bus uh, shelter or, you know, places where you can get on the bus, create more bays for spaces. So um, that is part of the proposal. Okay, here now is Fred in Greenbelt, Maryland. Fred, you're on the air. Go ahead, please. Okay, thank you, Coach. I'm glad to be here. And thank you for all that you do, really. Um, I live in Greenbelt, and and I'm um, quite experienced with using mass transit, bicycling as alternative transportation, and motor vehicles as well. I'm right near the Beltway. When we really comprehend what's going on in our environment, our world, like with COVID, we see many more people now 
being going to um, alternative communications for their workplace. They're working at home more often. The traffic is decreasing, not increasing. The problem with the Beltway has never been a full 100% problem. There are bottlenecks. The bottlenecks need relief. When it comes to alternative transportation, walkability and bicycling should be emphasized now because we see people turning to these so much more often because they isolate us, but they give us our exercise. And then in our communities, how often do we see places being built that do not connect to anything? But we could use something like, uh, are you familiar with Conterra, the large development up around um, next to Laurel? That gentleman put in roadways that connect to other major roadways, made thoroughfares for bicyclists also, and made pedestrian features that really make it walkable and rideable. These are the things that we need to focus on. Think of the reduction in cost. And when we look at mass transit, such as the Purple Line, I just had a flat tire the other day and got on a bus, a bus that I remember when I rode all the time. At that time of the day, would be packed. There was two people on the bus. Metro is sending out these huge buses that are having a minimal amount of riders, very, very costly. We need to take a more analytical look at what is happening before we make such decisions. And I'd like to point out one more thing. Quick. That MacLev will only accommodate the rich. $50 a pop going one direction is not going to accommodate people, and it stops nowhere in between. It is a poor selection and a poor choice. Of, okay. of a solution. Thank you very much for your call. He raises two issues, uh, Jordan. One of them is that given how our work patterns have changed during the pandemic, we're not exactly sure how many people will be resp- will be returning to work even after the pandemic is over because a lot of us have discovered new ways of working. So it's, I guess, difficult to predict what traffic is going to be like, isn't it? Yeah, you know, that is the big question. I mean, even even in our workplace, you know, yep. traditionally we'd be in the studio together, but I'm in my closet and you're, you know, in your living room. So, you know, it's it's so hard to say what the future will look like. I know a lot of people have really enjoyed the work from home and a lot of people really haven't. So hard to say what pre- people's preference will be going forward. Joining us now is Jeannie Braha, Executive Director of Rock Creek Conservancy. Jeannie Braha, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me, Kojo. Oh, and I should point out that uh, we've learned that motorcycles can use hot lanes. They are considered HOVs. But Jeannie Braha, can you tell us about Rock Creek Conservancy? What does the organization do? Yeah. Um, Rock Creek Conservancy is a small nonprofit. We're the friends group to Rock Creek Park, the national park in Washington, D.C., and our job as well is to protect the Rock Creek watershed. Okay. What are your thoughts about the expansion of the Beltway and I-270? Yeah, well, the proposed expansion of the Beltway would have a pretty significant impact both on the Stream Valley parks in Rock Creek as well as the quality of water in Rock Creek. And this is just one example around the project as its entirety. Um, As you drive along the Beltway, you know, when you pass the Mormon Temple, you can practically touch (laughs) Rock Creek from if you roll down your windows. Um, So you can imagine the ways in which expanding that by dozens of feet on either side with two additional lanes could have an impact on the, the critical habitat in the floodplains. Um, as well as all of the pollution then that rolls off of the, the road surface then would go directly into the park, as well as downstream into the portion of Rock Creek in the district. Um, and 
Kojo, I think it's really interesting the way we've been talking about a lot of the quality of life choices that um, these projects bring. And one of the drivers of quality of life in our region really is these amazing park systems that we have. Um, To have 33 miles of connected parkland from Georgetown to Lanesville is really a gift. Um, What have you been hearing from residents around the region? I have been hearing a lot of concern, particularly as during the pandemic, um, we're seeing shifts in the way people use parks and, and as well as their cars. Um, Montgomery Parks has had a system we call open parkways um, that allows uh people to recreate on Beach Drive in Montgomery County right alongside the Beltway. Um, so I think there's an increased awareness of the value of that space and concerns about losing parkland to expand highways. Okay, here now is Tony in Silver Spring, Maryland. Tony, you're on the air. Go ahead, please. Yeah, thank you, Kojo, for all your years of uh, informing us. Uh I live in Silver Spring. My neighborhood's right next to the Beltway and will be quite damaged by widening it. Uh, my question to the speakers are, what do you think of more transit options like light rail or bus rapid transit instead of widening the highways? Well, before I ask Jeannie Braha about that, Jordan Pascal, what is Governor Hogan's attitude toward that? Um, you know, he's always been a big proponent of this expansion. He's voted mm-hmm. for it over and over, and that's been his big push. Um, you know, I don't... I, that, that's been his priority, I guess, is, um, you know, I, I imagine he supports, you know, some sort of transit in addition, but, um, I, you know, his priority has been expanding this highway. Because, uh, Jeannie Braha, you know, these routes are very congested at least pre-pandemic, and drivers are sitting in traffic for long periods. So if that were to return, isn't there an argument for keeping people moving rather than on the roads emitting exhaust? There is definitely an argument that we need to make sure that we can get people where they want to and need to go more efficiently, certainly than pre-pandemic. I think that during the pandemic, we've had a real opportunity to think about different ways of imagining our future and whether that's whether we commute to work versus staying, uh, you know, going into an office regularly or just how we use these really critical public spaces. I, I mentioned the Open Parkways initiative. I, I also think this is an enormous project. The entirety of the project represents about 80 miles of highway, and it it's not necessarily appropriate to have the same solution across the entire project, depending on communities' needs, as well as the environmental sensitivities around the different project areas. Here now is Michael in Washington, D.C. Michael, you're on the air. Go ahead, please. Hi, Jojo. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how residents of uh, Maryland, D.C. and Virginia could get involved in this project. It sounds like a lot of partnerships are being decided on, and some planning is happening are there existing public hearings or organizations that individuals could reach out to to have more of a say in this process? Jordan Pascal, is this a done deal? Well, it's not a done deal yet. I mean, there's still a lot of votes to come. Um, the public comment period on the latest environmental study has closed. I believe there's more opportunities per- to participate in the future, um, and especially on the larger full 
project. You know, this phase one is, um, you know, in the works a little bit. But um, the best suggestion I have, if you just Google 495 270, uh, uh, the first thing that comes up is the state's project website. And there's a link in there that uh, says participate. And that'll kind of give you some of the, the public hearings and all the different th- ways you can kind of weigh in. And thank you for your call, Michael, and good luck to you. David emails Montgomery County working class communities and communities of color in central Montgomery County who are providing essential services in D.C. and lower Montgomery County will not be able to use the toll lanes, way too expensive, and will lose opportunities for expansion of transit expansion. Um, Ginny Braha, have you heard about any alternatives to this expansion project? Um, well, certainly one that we're keeping an eye on is the Purple Line, which is slowly <laughs> coming towards us, which would certainly <laughs> add additional cross-county and connect from, between Montgomery County and Prince George's County. Um, certainly hearing a lot about bus rapid transit. Um, and then, of course, we have Mark Lines and Metro Lines that could expand capacity. Well, speaking of the Purple Line, we got a tweet from Paul who says, why should we trust the state with this, considering the mess they may, they have done with the other public-private public partnership? Remember the Purple Line? To which, Jeannie Braha, you say what? <laughs> uh, we are very excited to see more mass transit come in with the Purple Line and... Um, certainly have some concerns about how it's rolled out. I will admit the environmental and social challenges are a bigger expertise of mine than the economics of the P3 system. What has your organization been doing to raise the concerns that you've mentioned? Yeah, well, we've certainly heard from lots of our constituents um, concerns about this project. So we've been trying to share information. I invite everybody to check out our website, rockcreekconservancy.org. Um with our partners at the National Parks Conservation Association and the Sierra Club, as well as a number of other organizations throughout the region, um, we submitted comments on the draft environmental impact statement, as well as some standalone comments focusing on uh, Rock Creek Parks. Um, We are also continuing to reach out the Montgomery County's uh, elected officials, both our state delegation, our Congress members, and our um, county officials have been really great um, advocates and voices on behalf of the concerns of Montgomery County citizens. So we're trying to keep them apprised of all of the concerns that we're hearing, um, as well as opportunities that we see. Well, if the project does move forward, what's your plan B, so to speak? (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, I certainly hope that before the project moves forward, if it were to, that there's significantly more careful analysis of the impacts on on people, on historic resources, and most importantly, parklands. Um, you know, part of the environmental review process is a really careful assessment of the ways that you can avoid environmental impacts and then looking at opportunities to minimize them. And then if worst case scenario, ways to mitigate them. And one of the conservancy's big concerns about this project is that the state is taking a really regional look at that mitigation. So it's possible that in places like Rock Creek, but also for other parts of the, the project, the environmental mitigation, the making good on that impact, um, will happen far off site, most likely in places with lower land costs. So we wouldn't necessarily see the benefits where the environment is hurting. And particularly in places with sensitive water quality, as well as you know the, the really important habitat connectivity we see in these stream valley parks, that really doesn't offer a benefit to our environment. 
Here is Jason in Rockville, Maryland. Jason, your turn. Hi, yes. Uh, calling uh, actually in the comments uh, about 274 and uh, and also my support uh, as well as the support of millions of residents in the D.C. area who want this bill. Uh, I've been following the project uh, quite some time, and I've also been a vocal uh, supporter of actually building a second film crossing as well. Um, and I've been listening to all these counterarguments, and they don't seem to make any sense. First of all, you know, uh, these naysayers, their argument is based on, well, you know, it's going to impact the environment. Well, there's going to be traffic whether we build this or not. 100,000 cars are traveling whether there's 10 lanes or one lane. And wouldn't we want traffic moving so it gets air pollution out? Uh, additionally, you know, th- th- these people aren't opposed to this solution. They're opposed to any solution. They, okay. You know, they're... they're well, they're, 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 they're not opposed to expanding mass transit, so they're not opposed to any solution at all. But here, can uh, you, Jason, can you... Re- true. They're, they're, they're opposed to the Purple Line. They're opposed to any... Uh, with, 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 most of the most vocal opponents of 274.95 are also the most vocal opponents to the Purple Line. Uh, I, 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 Jason, I find it, sorry, see if you can respond to this email we got from Matt. Matt asks, could you ask what happens if ridership projections turn out to be too high? Who bears the burden? The private contractors, the state, or some mix of both? Would taxpayers be on the hook if the project doesn't bring in the expected amount of revenue? To which you would say what, Jason? I'd say that comment is rather ironic, if not comical. You know, these people are the same people who want to tax this, tax that, with billions of dollars on social justice do-goodery, but when something comes along that actually can benefit the overwhelming majority of Montgomery County and Maryland, all of a sudden they're fiscal hawks. All of a sudden we, we can't spend okay. any money. Okay, well, we've heard from you in Montgomery County. Let's talk with somebody in Prince George's County. Here is Pam in Greenbelt. Pam, your turn. Hi, Kojo. Thank you. One thing that's been missing in this debate, and and I have to say in response to the earlier speaker, that we cannot build our way out of congestion. We can build more and more roads, and they will be filled up. And this will not be a free project. It won't be paid for privately. In the documentation that the proponents put out, they already admitted that they might have our taxpayers maybe on the hook for tens of millions of dollars. But the big problem for me as a citizen of Prince George's County is that for both this expansion and for the maglev is that our county has to give up so much and we see no benefit. Seven national parks will be impacted, our water and air will be polluted, we have to give up our forest preserves, yet for this beltway expansion, they'll mean that there'll be very limited numbers of entrance exit ramps and none of them will be in our county. Jordan, Jordan, in the 30 seconds or so we have left, what are next steps? When would construction begin and how long would it take? Yeah, not a done deal by any means. Uh, there's still a vote uh, by the Board of Public Works. Uh, the federal government still needs to weigh in, um, and their decision is expected in the fall. And then construction could uh, begin after that. But, um, you know, we're probably looking at, at decades uh, with, with the wow. whole 495. It's, it's a big project, $11 billion. So a lot, of, jo- a lot of time, a lot of money. Jordan Pascal is WMU's transportation reporter, whom I have not seen in almost a year. Miss seeing you, Jordan. <laughs> we miss you, too, and congrats on the semi-retirement. Thank you. 
Jeannie Braha, thank you very much for joining us also. Thanks so much, Kojo, and we'll have to get you out in Rock Creek when you have more time after retirement. I'm in Rock Creek all the time on my bicycle. Today's show on the future of transportation in our region was produced by Richard Cunningham. Coming up tomorrow, it's the first in our Kojo Connect series on race and social justice. In a year of pandemic and protest, better education in black history is more essential than ever. But what students learn depends largely on where they live. Two local educators share how they teach black history and why it matters. That all starts tomorrow at noon. Until then, thank you for listening and stay safe. I'm Kojo Nam. The Kojo Namdi Show is produced by Julie Deppenbrock, Sydney Granite, Lauren Marco, Kurt Gardiner, Richard Cunningham, and Inez Renike. Our managing producer is Ingalisa Schrobstorff. Our broadcast engineer is Rashad Young. Today's engineer was Mike Kidd. For past shows and more content, visit kojoshow.org. Thanks for listening to the Kojo Namdi Show. And if you're already a member of WAMU 88.5, thank you for your support. If not, it's easy to give online at wamu.org. Just click the donate button and thanks.